Okay, so we're actually picking up in uh, the latter part of uh, the first chapter of Titus. We looked already the three sections in a sense we can break chapter one down into. He's looking at those responsibilities that Paul was reminding Titus that he had to fulfill. And the first one, always there on the top of the list, is preaching God's word. So, so vitally important. It's not just about preaching, it's about preaching God's word. Uh, it's not about standing up and making noise. It's about saying what God has said and communicating that to people, that people learn, that they understand, that they grow. Um, the second part, uh, from verses 5 through 9, really Titus is charged with setting up and ordaining qualified leaders. He's told to appoint elders in the cities there, on Crete, where he was. Uh, and we mentioned before that the role of pastor is one that is ordained by God. Uh, if you look in Scripture, in Ephesians, uh, we're told very clearly that there are various ministry gifts that God sets up in his church. Uh, and the role of pastor-teacher is one of those things. It's a role that God uh, chooses and anoints. The role of elders is a role that is given to the pastor to do, um, to establish a team of leaders around him that will work with him um, and support him and help him in that task of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Um, and then the third section, uh, which we're going to move into, uh, is really Paul saying to Titus that he's got to silence these false teachers that were there you know these are the things that typically come under that that that, that role of, of a pastor there's lots of things to do it's not always the fluffy stuff that we like um and silencing false teachers is, is kind of a, a difficult thing because people get offended people don't like it if you tell them that actually we don't want you to say that i praise the lord we've had very few issues uh, in the fellowship since i've been here but we have had some We've had some issues, we've had some people even that have stood up and taught um, that I've had to go to and subsequently found out that they have a whole host of ideas and doctrines that are contrary to the word of God. That that creates issues, it creates problems. Um, And sometimes it can create division. But, you know, the division is always caused by those that move away from the word of God. It's never caused by the people that are staying true to the Word of God. It's the people that move away from the Word of God. They themselves actually create the division. And we have to have this check and balance in place within a church. Now, Paul picks up, we're going to read verse 10. He says, for there are many. I, I just, it's just so sad. The times we read that word, many, in terms of uh, those that are are walking away from the faith, those that are um, not serving or or following the Lord or or going off on their own uh, tangents, ideas. Uh, And we're told here that there are many unruly and vain talkers. So it's not surprising that we're going to come across them from time to time. If there's many of them, we we should expect we're going to bump into some. Paul says there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers. Notice these people set out with this intent to deceive. Now, sometimes they don't intentionally set out with a a, a malicious intent, but it's there. Because they want to convert people to their viewpoint, their position. I quite like one of the statements of Oswald Chambers. He said that we are to convert people to Christ, not to our point of view. And I like that because actually there's a danger that all of us, when we're talking to somebody, try to get somebody to, to like or believe or think the way we think. And actually, ultimately, we're to, to bring people to Christ. We're introduced, introduce Jesus to people, not to shape their whole mindset. And the Lord will work on individuals and he works on us differently. 
and at different times, and something that you may find vitally important, maybe not quite so to the Lord, because the Lord looks at the, the, the whole picture. The Lord looks at the heart, not the outward appearance, and the Lord sees where people are at, and there may be an issue with somebody that the Lord is far more interested in sorting out than the thing that we may perceive on the surface. In fact, again, Oswald Chambers comments that the people that the Lord puts around us often are the people that he puts there to show us things in us that need to change. So when you look at somebody and you get frustrated with them, take a look back at yourself first. Because uh, maybe the Lord is trying to point out something. I guess it's that speck and plank situation, isn't it? Well, again, Titus faced the same kind of problems that we've seen already uh, alluded to when we were studying Timothy. Uh, and of course, there was a mix of legalism. The, the, the whole Jewish mindset had kind of crept through of how important the law was. And of course, the law is vitally important. But it has a purpose, and its purpose is to lead us to Christ. And as we're told in the book of Galatians, once we've been brought to Christ, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. We don't need that chaperone anymore of the law. And the law, of course, only has any power over somebody who is living. And of course, we have died in Christ and we've been raised to new life. So the law now is powerless to those who are in Christ. And yet there were still those that were trying to get people to follow after the law and so on. And then, of course, there's the man-made traditions that go along with that. And of course, Judaism, if you know anything about Judaism, is full of man-made traditions. And Jesus made the comment, didn't he, to the Jewish leaders of the day, that they'd made the word of God of no effect by the traditions. You know, so many rules they put in place that they completely lost sight of what the, what the law was really trying to say. And on top of that, there's the whole idea of mysticism and things that came in and, and different ways that we can be um, religious or spiritual or whatever uh, you want to term it. Uh, he speaks of these people as being unruly. Uh, and by that, he's just simply meaning that they were, they were rebellious. You know, they didn't like authority. They were self-appointed. He says they were vain talkers. You know, the suggestion is that, you know, they were interesting to listen to. You know, people would stop and, and hear what they had to say. But really, it was just hot air. It wasn't anything of any content. And then Paul says, whose mouths must be stopped. Who subvert whole houses, teaching things they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Now, just to clarify this. You need to understand the context that in the early church, they didn't meet as we tend to today. They didn't have necessary buildings they would go to and they would refer to as church. They met from house to house. And so when it says, who subvert whole houses, it's talking about people coming into the congregation where the church met, because they met from home, from home to home. And coming into any particular group of believers and bringing in their own ideas and bringing their own doctrines in which lead people away from the truth of God's word. And it says teaching things they ought not. And again, they had an agenda. The tragedy, of course, is that the people that are doing it themselves are deceived, but then they were leading others into this deception. And as I say, the the idea of the whole house is here. It was the the, the churches, the houses, the churches that were meeting from house to house. And the, the, the filthy lucre here, I mean, it could be a number of things. It can be financial gain, and, and there may have been those that clearly had that intent. And in the church today, there certainly are. I mean, you've only got to turn on Christian television to see people that try to make merchandise out of the saints. 
You know, the whole idea of these miracle wallets. If you've seen them, you know, you send in your, your, your 10 pounds and they'll send you this miracle wallet and you'll never need to worry about money again. And I think, well, if you've got a miracle wallet, you don't need me to send you 10 pounds, do you? And, you know, and all these silly ideas. And, you know, you can buy a bottle of water from the Jordan. There's crystal clear water and things like that. You send your money in. And, you know, I mean, I, I've been to Israel as so as you have and you've seen the Jordan. It's not that clear. You know, it, it, all these ideas that, that get presented as somehow they're going to bless you and there'll be a benefit to your life if you give them money. No, any ministry that asks for money, I would strongly suggest you check because normally those are the ministries that God is not blessing. You know, my experience is that the ministries that don't ask for money, the Lord provides. You know, if if the Lord doesn't want to provide for them financially, then maybe that that's their their time's over. They've done their bit, or they weren't doing their bit in the first place. Um, but the, there's a number of ministries I could highlight, and I won't this morning. But they've never asked for money. They never send out letters saying, please help us, please support us. You know, in a church context, yes, it's right and proper that people should give to the work and ministry of the church. That's scriptural. But we don't stand here. We don't bring around an offering bag. We don't ask for money. You know, and we never will. You know, the Lord will provide. And, you know, quite frankly, if the Lord doesn't provide, then this church doesn't exist because it's all about the Lord. It's not about us. Um, and all the way the Lord has provided every step. Every time we've been in those situations, there have been times we've been very tight, but the Lord always provides what we need. Sometimes you get down to almost the last might, um, but the Lord sometimes just says, you know, look, pray more, pray more, trust me more. You know, and God has a plan in all these things. There, there was an account I shared some time ago, there's a Calvary Chapel, uh, in um, in Europe, I think it was Hungary, but I'm not sure. Um, and they got to the point that they, they didn't have enough money to keep meeting in the building they were meeting in. And they talked about what they were going to do, and they, they decided they weren't just going to go to the congregation and say, look, you need to tithe more and things like that. They thought, you just go, just trust God. And so they announced one Sunday morning that unfortunately from next week we won't be meeting here, but we will be carrying on. We're going to be meeting from home and invite everybody around that, that wanted to come to the home. And the church dwindled in number. But then the people that started going to the home started saying, you know, this, this isn't right. We had so much. It was so good before. Um, and they realized the only way of, you know, getting back to, to what they had, uh, with the building they could meet in and so on and all the facilities that provided was to give more. And so independently people decided they wanted to start giving and they managed to get, uh, another building they could meet in. And then the church started growing and people started getting added to the number and the whole church just took off. And it was this incredible story of God's grace as people realized that they needed to partner with God in what God was doing, that they have this privilege of being involved. And that's really all the giving is. You know, God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need anything that we can offer. But God gives us the opportunity of being involved. And what a privilege it is. But when we get those that are begging for money to support their ministries, well, I would strongly suggest you question that. You know, and I'm not suggesting that people that do that are, are leading others astray, um, but simply that, you know, from my experience, if, if God, well, you know, if, if you try and build the house without the Lord, the labor is in vain, is it not? You know, but if the Lord is building the house, then it's a good thing. One of themselves, Paul says, even a prophet of their own said that the Christians are always liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. Uh, and Paul's quoting uh, their own poets here. Um, uh, Epimenides uh, was born in Crete several centuries earlier. He made this comment. Uh, and there's a Greek word, um, uh, which means to speak like a, a Cretan. 
Uh, I'm not sure. I was trying to do some digging to see whether whether the word cretin that we use sometimes as a derogatory sense actually is derived from this. Uh, it may well be. I couldn't actually do the the search to to, to join those dots together. But um, but it's synonymous. The idea was somebody that was a liar uh, and so on. So it was suggesting that you know this this quote that Paul is referring to here uh, was a, root, a quote that was rooted. I, I read a book some years ago um, that was commenting on why Paul was wrong in so many areas. And one of the things it said was that that Paul made this kind of racially offensive statement about the people that lived in Crete. Uh, because this is what we're we're told here that because um, the next sentence Paul says uh, and this testimony is true. And they say, so Paul's saying that, that, that that's right, that the, the Christians were always liars and evil beasts. And Paul was not saying that he agreed with it. He was saying this is what they said. Uh, but somebody completely got the wrong end of the stick. Another one of the Christian poets had uh, also written this, uh, Crete with a hundred cities doth maintain and cannot deny this, uh, though to lying given. So in other words, saying that this was just so synonymous with being uh, an inhabitant of the island um, that you were just naturally given over to lying. Well, my experience is that's pretty much true of anywhere in the world. Um, I, I struggle to think of any place you can go where you're not surrounded by lies. Certainly the workplace uh, is full of people who tell lies. Um, had a, a an individual who's um, got this habit of being late, and he knew that if he was going to be late again, he'd be in trouble. Um, so we had a, a, a text come through saying his train had been delayed by half an hour, but he was going to try and get there as soon as he could, and he turned up about five minutes later than usual. Uh, we, <laughs> something wasn't quite right. We had one individual many years ago who uh, couldn't come to work one day because of the tube strike until we uh, emailed him back and notified him that the tube strike wasn't until the following day. Um, you know, it's just a habit. People get so used to lying and saying things that are not true and thinking they can get away with it. Um, God doesn't like lying. You know, the, the lake of fire is reserved for those amongst others who are liars. You know, and as certainly as believers, we need to be truthful and honest in the things that we say. And I know there's times that sometimes telling the truth can seem like it's going to get us in trouble or cause problems. But you know what? You trust God with that. Just be honest. Be truthful. Don't lie. It's not glorifying to God. I remember Ron Matson years ago, the pastor that was here, was in a situation once that his um, boss at the time, um, in his, his day job, uh, the phone call came in and his boss said, oh, if it's for me, tell him I'm not here. He said, but you are here. He said, yeah, but tell him I'm not. He said, but that would be lying. And, and, and his boss was kind of taken back. And, and Ron said, look, he said, if I'm prepared to lie for you, how do you know that I'm not prepared to lie to you? And it kind of stopped his boss in his tracks and kind of really made him think. But it's true. You know, we, as Christians, we should be known as those who speak the truth. That if people ask us what we think, then we should be honest. Again, the idea here is quite, quite, um, the, the, in the, um, the phrase we're given, not just beasts, but evil beasts was what the, the Christians were saying. Not just gluttons, but lazy gluttons and so on, or slow bellies. That's what it, it means, lazy gluttons is the idea. Uh, and this is what their own poets have said of themselves. And Paul just says, this witness is true. What he's saying is not, I agree with that, but that is what was said. This is my witness, what I'm saying to you is a true statement. This is what their poets said. And it says, wherefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Again, encouraging people to speak that which is true, not fabrications, not lies. However white your lie may be, it's still a lie. 
Uh, and Paul says again, uh, what I'm telling you is true, so contend for the faith, ultimately, is really what Paul is saying. Um, we, we should be sound in the faith. Jude makes it very clear in his letter how important it is that we contend for the faith. Uh, and we see Priscilla and Aquila in Acts chapter 18, verse 26, correct Apollos. Now, graciously, Apollos responds, and he's grateful that they point these things out. As a result, he goes on and he's a very effective evangelist winning people to the Lord. You know, if somebody is humble enough to be corrected, then they're humble enough for the Lord to use them. If they're not humble enough to be corrected, then they're not humble enough for the Lord to use them. And Paul goes on and says, you know, that these people, he says, we don't give heed to Jewish fables and commandments of man that turn from the truth. You see, the truth has been revealed through Jesus Christ. The truth of how we must get to God. And Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. And Jesus is the life. When we speak of truth, we're speaking of Jesus. People that turn from Jesus. They turn from that which Jesus taught, from who Jesus is. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And people that are going back to the law and to those Jewish fables that are alluded to here, they're turning back from Jesus to other things. And those other things cannot save them. Legalism normally comes in two phases as well. You know, it's the idea that you are saved by the law and that you're therefore to live by the law. Well, of course it's not true. We're not saved by the law. The law can only condemn us. And we can't live by the law. That's the whole purpose of the law. That's why after the giving of the law in the book of Exodus, the very next book is a book, Leviticus, which tells us what to do when we break the law. God understood very clearly that we couldn't keep his standards, that all have fallen short. Laws, it's been said, uh, for a nation. Christians are saved and are to live by grace. Now, laws are important, and we can't just dismiss laws to say that we are not under the law. It doesn't mean that we don't obey laws. I found out this week that driving in a bus lane will get you a £60 fine. That was only a short bit of bus lane, but there's no point in me appealing it, because camera evidence is there, and yes, I did drive for a very short period in a bus lane. Um, didn't mean to, but you know, those laws are there for a purpose. Laws we have in this land are there for a purpose, and we can't just ignore those laws. We are under the laws of the nation. But when it comes to our own salvation, we are not under the law. We're saved by grace. Unto the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that is filed and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. See, more than just money uh, motives here, you know, mind and conscience uh, are referred to as being defiled. Yeah, you know, we said already this morning that God looks at the heart. It's incredible, you know, that unto the pure, all things are pure. You know, that those that are seeking the Lord, that want the things of God, you know, but the contrast is those that, that don't want the things of God, that are defiled already. Well, it doesn't matter what you give them and what information, what, what teaching comes their way, they'll get twisted, it will get perverted some way. One of the most misapplied verses uh, to defend uh, ungodly practices uh, is this. Uh, Paul was refuting the false teaching of legalists with reference to dietary laws specifically. Um, uh, refusing to eat forbidden food didn't make you holier. Um, again, Jesus makes it very clear. And of course, we have the book of Acts, which tells us that all things are okay to eat. Um, 
They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. And Paul's not holding any punches here. He's being really um, quite forthright in his uh, view, in his opinion, but it's more than just a view and opinion because this is in God's word. He said these people, they profess to know God. On the surface, they, they look like they've got it right. But look at the works. You see, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's works often indicate. I mean, another word of, we could put for works of fruit. That's what it is. You know, Jesus said, by their fruit you'll know them. And James, James said that our works should define us as Christians. But really, if, if we look at people's works, look at what they're producing, we see that, these people that are being spoken of here, they deny him by their works, uh, and so on. You know, the idea, again, being disobedient is that they cannot and will not be persuaded. There's a pride element as well. Uh, and reprobate is not able to pass the test is really what it means. The same word that's used as uh, translated castaway in First Corinthians 9. Actually means an athlete. It's an athletic term. Uh, not that I know much about athletic terms, uh, but it means disqualified. Uh, and that's the idea, again, of these individuals. They've disqualified themselves. So a quick summary, then, of what we just looked at. Titus was to do these things, not stand by quietly. He was to exalt and convince uh, by means of sound doctrine, not just to make noise, but to, to point people back to the truth, to, to look at Scripture. He was to stop their mouths, to, to, to shut them up from saying what they were saying because they were leading others astray. Rebuke them sharply. And again, it's the same advice that we see in 2 Timothy 4.2 that Paul gives there uh, to Timothy to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Same information to these two pastors was being given. You know, <laughs> doctrine is the difference between life and death eternally. I was listening to a, a teaching a little while ago by uh, Sandy Adams, one of the Carroll Chapel pastors in America, is a wonderful man of God, a uh, very, very good Bible teacher. Um, and he was saying they had some building work done uh, on their, their building. Uh, and they got an estimate of what the cost was going to be. Uh, and then eventually the builder came back and the, the actual final cost was considerably higher. Uh, and Sandy was just talking to this chap. He said, you know, he said, if I'm that far off in the things that I do in my job, he said, people go to hell. He said, I couldn't afford to be that far away. Yeah, and he was then liking it, you know, the, the role he has as a pastor to various other professions and saying the responsibility, saying, you know, even a doctor only deals with life and death. He says, we're dealing with eternity. It's a big, big deal. And doctrine truly does make the difference between Life and death eternally. We need to make sure we get these things right. There's going to be a lot of people in hell that thought they were on the right path, that thought they were going the right way because somebody else had told them and they'd accepted and they believed it and it had never been checked against Scripture. Now again, you can choose what you want to believe, but you can't change the consequences. Some people say, well, I don't want to believe that. Well, that's okay. But that doesn't change something from being true. And then sound doctrine sets us up nicely to go into the next chapter. Again, just a quick review. The chapters, the first chapter we've seen already, uh, really is setting things in order. Second chapter now is all about sound doctrine. And the third chapter is about performing those good works. It's the fruit that is produced from this ministry and this labor. I, I, I like this. I just, I saw this. I'm just going to share this with you. Um, just indulge me for a moment. Uh, capitalism is the idea that he who dies with the most toys wins. 
Uh, Catholicism. It's he who denies himself the most toys wins. Uh, Anglicanism is really, there are only 39 toys that matter and some of those we can discard later. Uh, a Greek Orthodox, they had the toys first. Atheism, there is no toy maker. Agnosticism, uh, it's not possible to know how the toys were made. Uh, polytheism, uh, there are many toy makers. Evolutionism, well, again, the toys made themselves. Harry Krishna, he who plays with the most toys wins. Scientology, we are the toys. Communism, if you must have the toys, they have to be equally divided among you all. Baha'i, all toys are just fine with us. And then Amish, well, toys with batteries surely are a sin. (laughs) Terrorism, the doll is as important as the dump truck. Uh, Mormonism, every boy can have as many toys as he wants. Voodoo, uh, can I borrow that doll for a minute or two? Uh, Hedonism, Forget the instructions, let's just play. Hinduism, he who plays with plastic farm animals loses. Seventh-day Adventist, he who plays with toys on a Saturday loses. The Church of Christ, he whose toys make music loses. The Calvinist, once played, always played. Baptist, only underwater toys count. And Jehovah's Witnesses, well, he who sells the most toys door to door will, of course, win. Pentecostalism, he whose toys can talk wins. Uh, existentialism, toys are a figment of your imagination. Confucianism, once a toy is dipped in water, it is no longer dry. Feminism, dolls are degrading and shouldn't be played with. Uh, Seeker friendly churches, he whose toys are the most entertaining wins. Uh, liberal churches, the toys can be whatever you want. Uh, and the emergent churches, of course, whose toys most simulate the Dark Ages wins. Now, okay, just a little bit of fun there. But the point is, a lot of people go off on all sorts of tangents and they create all sorts of doctrines that people get drawn into. And what Paul is going to say here to Titus is how important it is that we stick to the doctrine that we get in Scripture. And we don't go off on those tangents. But speak now the things which become sound doctrine. That's the opening statement that Paul says in this chapter. Again, there were no chapter breaks the original, but here we get to this point. Paul says, doctrine is vitally important. Only speak the things that become sound doctrine. Back in Acts chapter 2, we mentioned this scripture earlier this morning, that the church continues steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. In fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. Every one of those is important. We can't single one of those out and say it's more important than the others. They are the big four. Okay? Those are the things that we need to hold on to as believers, as a church, that we've got to continue steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. And again, it's been defined that the Apostles' Doctrine is that which was taught by Jesus and that was then reaffirmed by the Apostles. Okay, we don't get to make up what doctrine is. Doctrine's already been decided. We can't change doctrine. Christian doctrine has already been set in stone, as it were. And again, the elders whom Titus were to ordain, ordain rather, back in chapter 1, were had to be able to do two things, to exalt and to refute or confute the heretics. See, most of self-centered humanity recoils from the concept of Christ dying for its sins. 
you know, as we said before, you can talk about any religious leader, you can talk about any kind of religious practice or whatever. But the moment you talk about Jesus, the moment you talk about his death on the cross, people become very uncomfortable with that. And there's a reason. It's because the enemy of all mankind, the one that manipulates people's hearts and minds, Satan, hates the idea of the concept, of the reality that Christ died for our sins. Crosses viewed more as an ornament, sadly, today um, than a reminder of the high price that God paid to reconcile man to himself. You know, the cross is just a piece of wood or it's a piece of steel or whatever. It's an ornament that people put around their neck or it's something they have in their house. But people, by and large, have lost sight of how important that cross is as a symbol of what took place. And the doctrine of the cross is crucial. You know, the cross in and of itself is nothing, but what took place on that cross is everything. Interestingly, that word crucial actually comes from the word crux, meaning cross. It gives you an idea of crucial. That, that's what the cross is. It's everything. It matters so much. Downfall begins with compromises, and it's the little ones that are often the most dangerous you know, people will sometimes talk about salvation without the Lord. They'll come up with other ways that we can get to God, and we don't need Jesus. It's such a sad reflection of the emergent church, the way they suggest there's all sorts of possible possible ways to God, and ultimately God wouldn't send people to hell and so on. I mean, so, in a sense, why do you even need salvation? Church members without conversion. Sadly, there are many people that go to church who are not converted. They've never come to that place of giving their lives to Jesus. It's probably never even been presented to them. And worship without the Spirit. You know, if we worship without the Spirit, we're just singing songs. It's true that singing is good for you. From a respiratory point of view, it's great. There's been all sorts of studies done saying how great and how important singing is. But when we worship, it's not about singing. Yes, we use music and it's a gift of God. It's a wonderful gift of God. But you know there's no account in Scripture anywhere, and challenge me on this please if you can, there's no account anywhere of an angel singing. And yet they worship. We, we kind of tie singing and worship together as one thing, because typically the way we do things, we use music to express our worship, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that in itself. But there's no account anywhere in the Bible where an angel actually sings. Even, even when th- that, that night when Jesus is born, we, the angels say, they, they speak, but there's no account of them actually singing. I'll leave you with you. If you, if you can find some, somewhere where, where I'm wrong, please tell me. But I, my understanding is that there's no account of that anywhere. Which means we're the only beings in the universe that sing. Which I think is quite interesting. I think it's quite a, a special, unique gift that we've been given that we can use music, which God created, no, no question. That we can use music, we can use singing as a way of expressing. And I love the statement, you may have heard it before, that, that music can take words somewhere that words on their own can't go. I can't quite like that. I think you understand the idea. That, that music does stir the spirit. But if it's just an emotional thing, then it means nothing. And I worship has to be in spirit and in truth. 
and our songs, if it's not led by the Holy Spirit, leading our worship to our Savior, then it's just singing songs, and that's no good. People without purity, sadly, is all too common in churches today. We started this year, and I really said, I really feel the Lord just staying on my heart, that whole issue of holiness and how we as a church and as individuals need to be holy. Uh, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord, we're told in the book of Hebrews. I think it's true. You know, the closer we get to God, the more people will see his reflection in us. And the more people, it was what was said this morning, what what Sarah shared with us about love, about people seeing our love for God, and they'll see through that our love for each other. And that's something that the world is so devoid of. Of course, it's led to, of course, to corruption of the educational system we see all around us. You know, it just amazes me how many things have crept into our education system. Um, and the, the judo Christian values, values have been replaced by pseudoscience. You know, we see it everywhere. And the teaching of evolution is one of the biggest issues, um, that we have because it just undermines the, the sanctity of life, the importance of life. You know, evolution gives voice to so many other things. It gives voice to racism. It even gives a, a voice to things like abortion because people no longer treat life in the same way. They don't understand that life is a gift of God. And of course, promotion of alternative lifestyles, which the Bible clearly prohibits, are all a result of these things. These subtle little moving aways from the truth, from doctrine. And sadly, the church over the years has actually helped to perpetuate uh, this decline rather than to slow it. It's interesting if you look at the prophetic books in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel particularly, but you know, all through the minor prophets as well, Hosea and, and so on, you know, they speak about Israel's sin shortly before God poured out his wrath. And as we, we studied a little while ago, the coming judgment of the church, how we are in the same place now that Israel was before God poured out his judgment on the nation of Israel. And this country, this the church in this country, the church in this world, will not get away without the wrath of God falling upon it for all of these things that we're looking at and talking about this morning. So what's our legacy from all of these things, moving away from this doctrine, this thing that, that Paul's talking to Titus about? Well, we have... Preachers without power, we have ministry without urgency, and we have a society now without a conscience. And the church is very largely responsible. And it's interesting, we go into verse 2, that we get instructions then for various groups within the congregation. We're told that the aged men must be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. That's how we should be. That's not impatience, that's in patience. Just to clarify that. We shouldn't be impatient, we need to be patient. We need to be sober. That doesn't imply uh, not drunk. Of course, that's that's given. Um, but the idea is vigilant. We need to be serious in our faith. Uh, the word grave there, it means respectful, dignified. I like the word temperate as well that's used here. Uh, it just means prudent self-control. Opposite of frivolous. You know, carelessness based on ignorance is, is a, a great way that's translated. This is actually, this word, this word is also translated uh, sober in other places and also discreet. But I love that, 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 that we're not to be careless because we're ignorant of something. 
People often joke about things they don't really understand. And when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to these things, we're told that the, the aged men, the mature men, and it doesn't have to be aged in years necessarily, but anybody that is mature in the faith, we need to be these things, sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. And then an instruction is given for the women, the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness. Not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, we're told. And it's not false accusers, not slanderers, not gossips. Because, you know, there's a tendency, isn't there, for, for conversations to start out of a genuine, sincere concern for someone, and then all of a sudden that can become, did you hear what so-and-so said about so-and-so? Well, the instruction very clearly for, for the aged women, for people who are mature in their faith, because they don't be like that. But that which becomes holiness, again, brings us back to that theme for, for this year, this underlying theme that God has been working on with us. Again, not false accusers. You know, we should be so, so slow to reach conclusions. Wait till we've got a bit more information. It's very easy to reach a conclusion without having the facts. And as I've said many, many times, that quote by Oswald Chambers, that there's always one more fact about the other person of which you know nothing, that if you knew it, it would change everything. And it's so true. How many times do we you know, form an opinion, even if our own, own, own hearts and minds, about someone or something, only to find later something else? Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, now I understand why. You know, We should be very slow to reach conclusions. Again, teachers of good things. The I always feel the the aged women, as as Paul refers to it here, in a congregation, have such an important part to play. In so many ways, and it's true that scripturally, and we looked at it when we were going through Timothy, you know, the the role of pastor is not one that's given to women. But that doesn't mean that women can't teach. Women teach in all sorts of ways. Sometimes in the most beautiful, gentle, subtle ways that they can influence, they can use that godly wisdom that God gives them for, for so much good. And not, I'm not talking just for children, I'm talking for the whole congregation. It's almost a kind of a stabilizing element within a congregation. Specifically, we're told here that they may teach the younger women to be sober to love their husbands, to love their children. Now, isn't that an obvious thing? You know, to love your husbands and to love your children for a woman, I guess. But then, isn't there that, that reality also that there are days, I'm guessing, that as a mum, being a mum can be a challenge. Being a mum can be one of those things that you think, I don't want to do this anymore. My children are not as beautiful and as wonderful as I was hoping they were all going to turn out to be. There are days like that. There are other days that our children are wonderful and a real blessing. I see it when I come home from work and there are days that joy is just beaming and the children have been wonderful. There are other days less so. But you know, we need to love our children regardless of the circumstances. We need to love them through that because that's how Christ loves us. And this idea of, of loving their husbands you know, this has to go hand in hand, of course, with the husband's responsibility. The husbands are to 
love their wives as Christ loved the church. You know, love is that greatest commodity in a home. So, so important. We go on and Paul says that to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, and then obedient to their own husbands. Now, this is something that the world today has a real issue with. Is this that kind of idea? It's always suggesting that women should be submissive. But, you know, that's exactly what the Bible says. But the problem is not that women should be submissive, but we totally misunderstand what that word means. It doesn't mean yielding to anything and everything. To submit means to get under somebody else's mission. It implies real strength. Sub to be under and the idea to admit it comes from the idea of mission. You know, we're, we're actually told in scripture we should submit to each other. But you know, when a, a woman submits to her husband, when she gets under his mission, when she supports him, it empowers him. And actually, the love that is reciprocated brings this whole circle together. And you know, as we said before, any, any husband who loves his wife as Christ loved the church, well, there, there is no wife that would have a problem with a husband like that and submitting to that. We, we don't have a problem submitting to Christ because we know he loves us with an unconditional love. And it should be the same. If husbands love their wives as they should, then wives will have no problem with this part of the equation as well. But it certainly doesn't imply weakness or any of those things. In fact, as I said, it implies more strength than anything else. And of course, there are, it says keepers at home. There are today, of course, many women that go out to, to earn money and so on. And some of that is necessitated by the world we live in. But there is a fundamental responsibility here that the word of God gives to women in regard to keeping the home. And I also think it's important that husbands understand the wives have that responsibility. You know, I do have a say at things we, we have at home, but ultimately I learned very early on from some godly people that taught me that home is made by my wife. She's the one that puts the trinkets and the bits and all the stuff around and all those things. You know, we, 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 we've got loads of hearts, you know that, you've seen the house. And we've said many times that home is where the hearts are. Um, but you know, actually, that's that's her place. In terms of, the, she makes those decisions. She makes it a home. I, it, you know, there is a difference between a home that is purely made by a man, and when it's for a family, you need that influence. Interesting, isn't it? What what Paul says here to be. Discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Interesting, isn't it? One commentator commented on the feminism movement and said that given this scripture, are we to conclude that that in itself is blasphemy against the word of God? I'll leave you to draw some conclusions there. I think it totally undermines a woman's position, a woman's role. It doesn't take away. We have to work together. We're to be in co-respondence in this relationship that God places us in. And as we see from the very clear structure that's given in 1 Corinthians 11, a woman is no less than a man. 
And there's no scriptural precedent for stating that idea. Jesus makes it very, very clear that, you know, although Jewish ideas and mindsets may have put those things, you know, forward, Jesus is very, look at the way he treats women for a start. But 1 Corinthians 11 shows us that, that we have this hierarchy. We have God, we have Jesus, we have man, and we have woman, and then we have our children underneath that. And Jesus is no less than God. Jesus is God. And a woman is no less than a man, but for the sake of the order, God has established it this way. And God gives reasons. We looked at some of those things when we were going through Timothy. Young men are told, Paul says to Timothy, they should be exhorted to be sober-minded. So it's an important quality for young men because so often they just shoot from the hip, as it were. They just Everything's purely emotional or physical or whatever else. But exhort them to be sober-minded, to think. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. So this is a challenge to Timothy. Paul says, you know, you have got to set an example. And the same for all of us. As believers, we need to set an example for others in the way that we live, the way we conduct ourselves. Showing thyself a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing thyself, un- sorry, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. Gravity is a great word, isn't it? The idea of pulling everything together. That's how we should be. I'll leave those notes and we'll go through all the details and we'll get through the text. Sound speech that cannot be condemned that he that is of contrary part may be ashamed having no evil to say of you. I love that. We don't give opportunity for people to, to speak ill of us. Chuck Minister said this, a church will never rise any higher than its leadership. Your family will never rise any higher than you are spiritually. Exalt servants to be obedient to their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again. This is a good scripture for the workplace, isn't it? And this is how we should be. We should have respect for our employees. Yeah, and I praise God that God has given me favor with the bosses I've had opportunity to work for over the years. And that all of them have seen in me something different. Not just the usual attitude, that kind of typical, when we see it more and more today, just answering back, and I don't want to do that. That willingness to serve and, and to be obedient, to be faithful. That's how we should be. It's interesting that 90% of the names on the walls of the catacombs were those of slaves. It implies that an awful lot of the people in the early church were slaves and servants. And then we're told, servants, obey or be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh. You know, in our, our daily lives, in our employment or whatever else, we're to serve them. We're to be obedient to them. And it says, with fear and trembling, in singleness of heart, as unto Christ. That's why we do it. Not because they're right or because we really have huge respect for them, which we may or may not. But we do it as unto the Lord. Because it's glorifying to God. Not with eye service as men please. Don't just do it, you know. But from the heart. But as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, doing service. As to the Lord and not to men. Again, it's obedience to masters according to the flesh. You know, again, 
physical and mental, not spiritual or the conscience, but in terms of the things that we are asked to do on a daily basis by our bosses. And again, Paul here is speaking uh, of those that we work for in, in a worldly sense. Um, it's been said before again that you know we should work 60 minutes for every hour paid. Yeah, that employee-employer relationship, um, we see in the early church that so much of the church was said a moment ago were slaves and so on. And Paul doesn't say that you should come out from that situation. No, no longer slaves. No, we're still to work for our employers. You know, it's no different. But the most important relationship is that we have to Jesus, that we're to be a bond servant, a bond slave, a doulos to Jesus, that we have to give ourselves to him. And because of that, it affects everything else in our lives as well. I'm just going to skip through these. I'll leave them in there. Uh, not uh, prolonging, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. You see, notice it's our lifestyle, it's our character, it's the things that we say that are going to have this effect on other people. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Again, this grace has appeared, past tense, teaching us present tense. And we've got in verse 13, you'll see, looking for that blessed hope, which is the future tense. Teaching us that denying our godliness and worldliness, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That's how we're to live. Again, God is not trying to reform the world. He's redeeming those who accept Christ. This is our whole idea we've seen with uh the kind of kingdom theology that came into the church, that we're going to transform the world. That's not what Scripture teaches at all. And then, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've talked before about the rapture. I believe this is a very clear reference that Paul makes to the rapture of the church. And the last few verses, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. We've talked a lot about that purification, that redemption this morning as we celebrate the communion again together. These things speak and exalt and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. We'll leave it there. Next week, Elia is going to be bringing the word to you and teaching. Please pray for Elia as he prepares this week. And read ahead. The following week, we're going to move into the last chapter of Titus. Read through the chapter. If you have opportunity, look through some commentaries. Let these things sink in because Paul is saying to Titus how important these things are and how important our lives are in impacting others around us. Let's bow our hearts. Father God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for these things this morning. Lord, we thank you that Paul was moved of your spirit to write them to Titus. And Lord, I pray that they be written on our hearts as well, that we would receive these things as if written to us, that we would understand the importance of these things. Lord, help us to teach and to speak that which is becoming sound doctrine. Lord, not our own ideas or thoughts or feelings. Lord, not trying to convert people to our opinion, but only seeking to bring people to you. Lord, we just thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you for this whole service. For this time we've been able to encourage and bless and edify each other. Lord, we pray that we will be equipped now for the work of ministry ahead of us this week. For your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.